Well, today, as we officially begin our ministry year here at Rio, we're going to start a study that's going to encompass almost the entirety of the year. It will take us to Christmas. And we're calling it the story of the king. And so basically what I just said is that our plan anyway is to spend almost the entirety of this year all the way to Christmas actively, purposefully, meaningfully, sacrificially, intentionally, strategically seeking as citizens of the king to find our place in the story of the king, to enter into the story of King Jesus. And we're going to do it in a little bit of an unusual way, at least maybe if you're new to us here at Rio. And I say that because we're going to look at the story of King Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to go back into the pages of the Old Testament. We're going to go back specifically to the books of First and Second Samuel. And there we will behold our king and behold ourselves and learn all kinds of things about him and us and what it means to follow and to be a member of his kingdom. One of the things that I've tried to instill in you guys, and I hope that if you haven't gotten it, you will, is that the Bible from the first page all the way to the last page, whatever number that happens to be in your particular Bible, is altogether and entirely about Christ. And we will be discerning our king from these books that chronicle, and this is really important, the transition of God's people in the Old Testament from the faulty, from the weak, and from the tragic governance of an occasional judge to the governance of the kings. Kings who in their greatest moments give to us a picture of the greatest king who is Jesus and king who in every other moment give us a longing for the greatest king who is Jesus. And the bottom line of this whole year is that A, we need a king and B, the king that we need is Jesus. And I think for some of us, that's kind of a no-brainer. You know, I mean, you hear that and you go, well, that's not exactly a groundbreaking statement for me, Tom, because I've been in the church for a long time. I've been a Christian for a long time. Here are some basic fundamental understandings that I have. I have this understanding that I have soiled myself in a way that I cannot make myself clean from that I'm broken in a way that I can't put myself back together. I need King Jesus because I'm a sinner and only Jesus qualifies as the great forgiver of sins. And that's true. But let me tell you, you need King Jesus for so much more than that. First and Second Samuel will record a transition. A transition from the governance... Well, that was faulty. That was weak. That was tragic, really, to that of the king. We need King Jesus not just to rescue us from our sins. We need King Jesus to rescue us from ourselves. We need to experience the transition, at least in some sense, that they experienced from the transition of the reign and rule of an occasional judge to the transition of the reign and rule of a king. Let me remind you how the book of Judges ends. If you haven't read it in a while, here's how the book ends. And I say this because this is how my book will end. It's how your book will end. The book of my family, of your family, of this church, of this city, and of this world absent, the constant, active, present reign and rule of King Jesus. It ends like this. Judges 21, verse 25, last verse. In those days, there was, here's the problem, no king in Israel. And so what happens when there's no king in Israel? The same thing that happens when there's no king in Tom. The same thing that happens when there's no king in you. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, what's the result of that in the book of Judges? Because we see it in our own lives, we see it in our city, we see it in our world as well. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, chaos and disaster. For us individually, for our families, for our businesses, for our church, for our city, Guys, we need a king, and the king that we need is Jesus. And we don't just need Jesus to save us from our sins. We need Jesus to save us from ourselves. We need Jesus to swoop down into our lives and to say to us, hey, at the expense of my life, I not only forgive your sins, but here's what else I do. I have purchased you. You no longer belong to you. Now you're mine. And so I'm going to graciously take my place on the throne of your life. And from here forward, by the power of my spirit, in community with my people, and in accordance with my word, which you are to take into your heart day by day by day and store there so that in every moment of every day, it's sitting there waiting. And when you need direction from me, your king, the Holy Spirit can reach down and grab that principle and remind you of it. And you'll hear my voice. Okay, by the power of my spirit and in community with my people and in accordance with my word, thou shalt henceforth do not what's right in your eyes, but what's right in my eyes. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is we're addicted to what's right in our own eyes. The problem with that is that what it requires of us is total surrender. And so the first thing that I want you to see as we enter into the story of the king this year is that your king calls you to totally surrender your life to him. And the second thing that I want you to see, because it's related and we have such a problem doing that, is that one of the primary ways that he does it is through pain and difficulty and brokenness. He uses those things to bring us to the place where we finally throw our hands up in the air and say, you know what, Lord, I, I, I can't do this. I, I, I'm <laughs> What's right in my eyes doesn't work. Here. If you can do something with this, then I'm ready finally to live for you. And in doing that, he redeems all of our pain, difficulties, and brokenness. And here's why. Because total submission to Jesus, and that's what he uses that to bring us to, is good. So if you've done your personal worship for this week and you are studied up and ready on this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at, well, then you know that the book of 1 Samuel opens with the story of this wonderful, incredible, amazing woman who has so much to teach us today. And her name is Hannah, and you know as well that Hannah becomes the mother of Samuel. What you might not know is that Samuel then goes on to become a great prophet in Israel, prophet and kingmaker. He's the guy who anoints Saul the first king and David the second pretty important guy. And so right out of the gate then, you know that his, her story ends well, but it, it begins in pain and in difficulty and in utter brokenness. And I say that because it begins in barrenness. It begins with her inability to have children. And that inability to have children, by the way, doesn't just last a couple of days or weeks or months or even years. It lasts for years and years and years and years and is compounded by the fact that her husband really doesn't understand her heart, seems to be very insensitive, as we'll see evidence of, and compounded further, perhaps, by the fact that it seems as though she probably cried out to God and cried out to God and cried out to God and cried out to God to be delivered from this terrible condition. And what was God's answer? 
Nothing. At least from her perspective, there was no answer at all. And so then how alone do you think she felt? And yet one of the morals of the story is that she was not alone. And in fact, God was using the pain and difficulty and brokenness even of his silence for good, and that he was using that as well to bring her to this place of total surrender. And so then Hannah's barrenness, or her story begins in barrenness, and barrenness, and this is kind of a big statement, in her day was even more difficult than it is today, and it is profoundly difficult today. But in that day, I think that it was even worse, and I say that because in her day, if you were barren, you not only were denied children, that's painful enough, but you were also denied value. In other words, your self-worth in society was tied to your ability to produce children. Well, then if you can't produce children, then you're worthless. You see how that went? That's tough. Not only that, but for Hannah, her barrenness essentially required her husband, Elkanah, to go out and marry another woman so that he could have children with her. That's kind of a shocker, isn't it? But back then, it wasn't a shocking statement at all. Back then, it was kind of culturally accepted. It was understood that you needed children, not just to work the family farm, guys, but to inherit the family farm. And absent an heir, the family farm might be forfeit. And so Elkanah, her husband, married a woman named Penina, with whom, the text says, she or he had children, plural. And again, that speaks to the length of the languishing of Hannah in this condition that is so incredibly painful. See, she languished in this long enough for her and her husband to get married and to try to have children and 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 try to have children and, to have children and recognize that there's a problem. And then to go to doctor and specialist, doctor and specialist, doctor and specialist, doctor and specialist, be submitted to all manner of indignity, and then to finally quit. And for him then to go and find another wife and marry her and have child after child after, well, we don't know how many, but we're talking about a long period of time. And then, of course, all, on top of all of that, there's the dysfunction that all of this brought into the family because, I mean, Elkanah has two wives now. He has a wife that he loves, but who cannot give him children, and he has wife of utility. Really. He doesn't love the other woman, but she can give him children. So now think of the dynamic here. There is an obvious rivalry that begins to develop within the context of this house because the, the loved but barren wife is jealous of the children of the fruitful wife, and the fruitful wife is jealous of the love that her husband alone has for the other woman. And so Elkanah is a guy who takes a lot of long camel rides. <laughs> and Hannah is a woman who suffers profoundly. But God takes her suffering and he redeems her suffering. He redeems it by bringing her to a place of total surrender. And as the story goes... At no time of year was Hannah's suffering more intense than when her family made the annual trip to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord was located in those days. And they would go there annually to offer sacrifices to the Lord, which practically speaking meant they would all load up and they would take animals with them, the best of their bulls and goats and lambs and whatnot, the most spotless, the most flawless, the most valuable. And they would travel together with these animals to Shiloh and there they would offer them as a sacrifice to the Lord, which means they were slaughtered and burned up. So if you're one of the animals on the family farm, this is the trip you want to miss out on, okay? 
You're not offended when they leave you off the list. But if you're one of the Israelites, like Hannah, who grew up doing this, well, there's a significance there too, because you have this built-in understanding of what it means to bring an offering unto God. You've seen it over and over and over again. You know that it is an act of worship, sacrifice. You know that it's to be of your best, of your best. Now draw that into your life. And you know as well that once you bring it to God and you hand it to God, okay, you are totally surrendering it to God and you are graphically understanding that year by year by year as an Israelite by the simple fact that whatever animal you brought with you did not return home with you. What you hand over belongs entirely to the Lord. And I point all that out because in a minute here in this story, you're going to see that Hannah brings something far more precious than a bull or a goat or a lamb to the Lord. And she hands him over. She's going to take her one and only son and hand him over to God, not to be slaughtered and burned on an altar, but handing him over a hundred percent Nonetheless, in other words, he's not going to make the return trip home with her. And I would submit to you that that is an act of total surrender. Because how many parents wouldn't rather surrender themselves? And how many parents could surrender their one and only precious little boy without first surrendering themselves? When she brings her son... She's all in. There's no other way to interpret it. And so Hannah and her family travel to Shiloh every year to worship the Lord with their offerings, Penina with her many children, Hannah with, well, none. And every year, Elkanah, who was sensitive enough to pick up on the fact that, okay, hey, this is a problem in the dynamic of these ladies, but he was not smart enough, apparently, to figure out that what he did made things worse, not better, tried to make things better for Hannah, but in fact, ended up making them worse. And so one of the things that he would do is he would show favoritism to Hannah by taking a double portion of the meal at the family meal, at the sacrificial meals that they would have there in Shiloh, and he would give in front of everyone Hannah the double portion. He's saying demonstrably, this is my favorite wife. If you're wondering which one of you I love, it's easy. Well, you know, nice thought, I guess. But what happened every year was so incredibly predictable. You wonder about this guy. Because every time he would do that, what would happen with Penina, the fruitful and yet unloved wife? Well, she'd get upset, wouldn't she? And then she would play the only card that she had with Hannah, and it was a very effective card. She would take Hannah's barrenness and stick it in her face. And Hannah then wouldn't eat because she's so upset the double portion, you know, that he had just given to her and would cry and cry. And Elkanah, at least in this part of the story, seems to have had it with her crying. He says in 1 Samuel 1 verse 8, it says that Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat these double portions of the best food that I give to you each year at these feasts? And why is your heart so fast or so, so sad? So what is he doing here? He's complaining to her about her sorrow and he's piling guilt on top of her grief. Grief. 
And then he makes it all about himself. He says, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And she doesn't even respond, which I think is a good move. I think that was good. We simply read that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And where does she go? She goes to the tabernacle, to the temple there. She goes to seek out the one who really will step into the role of her true husband in this story. Because he is the one who understands her heart. And very significantly, he is the one who will supernaturally provide for himself through this dear woman, a son for himself. Now, who does that sound like if not Mary, the mother of Jesus, through whom God supernaturally provided a son for himself and a savior, but not just a savior, a king for all the rest of us. So we read in verse 9 that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose and she went to the tabernacle. And then we read, now Eli, the priest, keep your eye on this guy, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah was deeply distressed. It means literally that she was bitter in soul. And she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And I think what the writer here is doing is he's creating an image and it's the image of a basin. And her soul is that basin. And in the soul is a liquid or in that basin is a liquid, which is the bitterness of her soul. And the idea is she's pouring it all out to the Lord in her prayer and in her tears. And she vows as a part of this, a vow of total surrender to God. It's absolutely and unequivocally that because she says, oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and literally, and I love this word, remember me. She's saying, God, I am like Humpty Dumpty. I have fallen. I am shattered. And I can't put myself back together again. And my husband can't put me back together again. And the doctors and specialists can't put me back together again. And in fact, all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put Hannah back together again. But the king can. That's the point. She's saying, take all of these pieces that are all over the place and remember me. Put me back together again. Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then here's what I'm going to do. I will love him. I will protect him. I will keep him. I will cherish him. And I will be forever glad that I finally got you, my king, to do for me what I've always wanted you to do for me, because that's the way it works with a king. No, it's not. Emphatically, it is not. It's not. It may be the way that we relate to the king. We'll put that in quotes. But it's not the way that it's meant to work. He's not here to serve us. He has served us in Jesus. He's bought us out of our foolishness, out of that which is right in our own eyes, and He is here to make us servants of Him. And Hannah finally gets it and goes all in. Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and and remember me, put me back together again and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm vowing it. I will give him to the Lord. I'll give him back to you, she's saying, all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head, which just means that he will be dedicated unto you, my God, from birth. 
And again, Hannah knows what it means to bring an offering. She's not confused. She knows that it's an act of worship. She knows that it is to be her first and best. And she knows that when you bring a sacrifice to God, you totally surrender it because it doesn't make the return trip home with you. And what's fascinating to me is that as soon as she makes this vow, the vow is tested. And here's how it's tested. She is immediately given insight into the spiritual insensibilities of this man, Eli, who incidentally also had two notoriously wicked sons, and who would be the person that she will bring her little three- to five-year-old boy to and leave with so that he can raise her son. Who's she really going to leave him with? Her true husband. The one who understood her heart, who heard her cry, who put her back together again. The one who provided for himself, supernaturally, a son through her. Boy, I'll tell you what. This is a lady of faith right here. So she makes this vow, and then it says, verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord Eli, the high priest, notorious for, you know, two wicked sons, observed her mouth, for because Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard, and therefore Eli took her to be a drunk woman. So he mistakes her piety for wickedness, her prayerfulness for drunkenness. I mean, he has totally missed it, and this is the high priest. And so then he rebukes her. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you, woman. But Hannah answered and corrected him. She says, no, my Lord, I am a troubled, I'm a woman troubled in spirit, she says. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But what had she taken in? She had drunk the cup of suffering that God had ordained for her, and it had finally completed its task in her heart. She says, but I have been pouring out my soul like a liquid before the Lord. And notice this, do not regard your servant as a what? Worthless Woman, Why? Because now she has children and she doesn't have any children yet. Because her worth is found somewhere else. In someone else. It's found in her king. And that's where our worth needs to be found as well. She says, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli, who, who gets it, Answer, go in peace, and the God of Israel, he speaks prophetically, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she answered and said, let your servant find favor in your sight. And then the woman Hannah went her way, and she ate. Her emotions are settled. Her stomach is back to work. And her face was no longer sad, and Elkanah said, you need to make more trips to the tabernacle. And God granted her request, for we then read that Hannah and Elkanah rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. 
And she called his name Samuel, which means literally heard of God, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. But again, why? So that she might finally get God to do for her what she'd always wanted him to do for her? No. Because she had finally come to the place where she realized that's not the way it works. That's the road to chaos. She asked God to give her this great gift that she might in return offer him back to the Lord. It is total surrender. And of course, you know the story. She weans the child and then she takes him, age three to five, somewhere around there, over to Shiloh and she leaves him there with Eli, you know, with a car and a cell phone and a computer so they can Skype. And it's none of that. She takes her precious little three to five-year-old boy. You ever had one of those? I have. He's 11 now. I was looking at him. He fell asleep on the couch yesterday because he spent the night at his friend's house the night before, so he was done. All wrapped up in a blanket, his little toes sticking out the end. He'd be mortified if he was sitting in the room right now. How precious is your son? She took her one and only, three to five years old, back to Shiloh, and she left him there (laughs) with Eli. Not really. With Eli and the Lord. Unless you think that she was just completely destroyed by this. The next 10 verses, the first 10 of chapter 2, record her song of thanksgiving and of worship. And do you know how the song ends? It ends with her prayer for the king. And not just for King Saul or King David, but for King Jesus, who hasn't just come to save us from our sin, but from ourselves. And he swoops down into our lives and says, hey, in case you missed it, I gave my life not just to rescue you from your sin, but to purchase you for myself. And so here's the way it works. King, subject. And there are no more blessed people on the planet than his subjects. Thou shalt henceforth by the power of my spirit, in community with my people, in accordance with my word. Okay, do. Well, what's right in my eyes? But you know what it requires? Total surrender. So I want to close with a couple of questions that I hope challenge you a bit. You can give them some thought throughout the course of the day. I think you'll know the answer right away, truthfully. Question number one is, have you totally surrendered your life to Jesus? And not just your sin, but yourself. You get that? That's the conversation we're having. We're all real happy to drop our sin off with him. It's just the rest of us that we're not so excited about. Even though doing what's right in our own eyes is getting us, well, where? See, he's asking for the whole of you, and and, and he's laying it out and saying, okay, have you read the book of Judges? Because that could be the way your book ends. But if you will surrender yourself to me, learn to do what is right in my eyes. You will bring me great glory, 
many wondrous sacrifices. And that will bring you much praise and joy. I think oftentimes we have God, you know, we're sort of in the game of our life. It's our game. We've designed it. It's our life. Put quotes around all that stuff. And in the moment, you know, if you said, where's Jesus? To be honest, he's on the bench. He's sitting right over there and he's asleep because I haven't bothered him for a while. But I'm glad that he's over there because, you know, it may be that I run into some kind of an obstacle as I'm pursuing whatever it is that happens to be right in my eyes because I have a plan and I have a program and I've got an agenda and I've got all of that stuff. And occasionally he's really helpful. So if I get a snag, I can call Jesus into the game and we'll run a special play and I'll throw the ball to him. It's not the way it works. He's not here to sit on the bench. He's here to sit on the throne. It's his game. You're his player. He's calling the plays. And maybe he wants to throw the ball to you. So, have you totally surrendered your life to Jesus? Secondly, what is your barrenness? In other words, how are you suffering? And have you stopped for a moment and and just sort of transcended the pain of it all for a little season and said to yourself, my goodness, you know, my God comes to me and he says that he works all things together for good. And I see over and over again in the Bible how he takes pain and difficulties and sufferings and defeats and despair and all of this other kind of chaos and difficult stuff and he uses them for good to cause his people to turn to him, to return to him to find life, not in the empty cisterns of this world, but, but in Christ, the fountain of life. Have you stopped and thought about whatever difficulty it is that you're in? I think it's a good time, you know, it's the beginning of the year, and said, okay, how is the Lord using this to bring me to surrender to him? What is it that I'm withholding that I need to give? Lastly, Will you join us in entering into the story of the king this year? And Matt's going to talk about how, but I just want to tell you it's going to take a sacrifice. It will take a sacrifice of your time. It will take a sacrifice of your energy. It will take a a reordering, a restructuring of your commitments, if you have to do that, to make it work. I heard a great statement while I was off on vacation. My wife was reading Andrew Murray, who is phenomenal, incidentally. But he gave uh, us this, this old Dutch proverb. It says, what is heaviest must weigh heaviest. Do you understand what he's saying with that? He's saying that, look, there is a weightiness to everything in your life. And the problem that we have in life is we don't recognize that which is the weightiest thing. And then let everything else give way to it. Be ordered by it. He's saying what is weightiest is Christ. It's your king. And it must be weightiest with we, his people. So if you've made resolutions this year, and I'm sure that at least some of you have, I would ask you to resolve this year to make Christ or to allow Christ to be, in fact, the weightiest thing in your life. And little by little, day by day, Sunday by Sunday, community group by community group, enter into the journey. Get into his story and be transformed for his glory by him. Okay?
All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do praise you that we have a king. One who entered into this world that we did not deserve his presence. One who laid down his life that he might offer us his love and grace, though in truth we just deserved his judgment. One who calls us into his kingdom, makes us members of his family, and one who so freely disposes his wisdom to us. May we embrace the reality of our king this year and find not only our forgiveness, but our life in his story. Do these things for your glory, we ask, and for the good of this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.